What's up, everybody? Brandon Halvek here. Before the episode, just wanted to let you know about our exciting news. We're really excited to announce that we will be adding another showtime during the week. In addition to our Thursday 5 to 7 show on 91.3 WVUD, we'll also be broadcasting on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. Same show. It'll be Jake Lampert and I, but we're excited to be able to talk NFL football the day after the games and also go through the weekend in Delaware basketball action. We'll have both the Thursday show and the Monday show for you on our Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast feed. Again, an extra show, still Thursdays 5 to 7, but we'll also be here on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. with Blue Hen Sports Cage. Without any further ado, here's tonight's episode. He looks really good. It finally hit me that Delaware's not just playing to keep it close. Delaware's here to win. But if they're going to really lock down in a game, this would be the one to do it. Overall, I think this is their identity now. There weren't enough things that you and I could say on the broadcast to praise Eric Carter. I do have to put out a formal apology to Darian Bryant. It's over for the Eagles. When you're only better than the Cleveland Browns, you're not very good. This is going to be the Delaware defense like, through and through. If you lose, you're leaving yourself on the bubble with all of these other teams that I would say are just as good as you are. Losing Nicole, that's a big part of what we did a year ago. It's a process, and we need to really lay a strong foundation of who we are as a basketball program. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. All of a sudden, it seems... By next Monday, we're going to have our Super Bowl pairing. I put that down in our in our little document to plan and is like, wow, we're going to know the two Super Bowl teams and we're going to have one game left to dissect for those next two weeks. Let's get into it. You're listening to Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. Last weekend was the divisional round. This weekend's the conference championship. And again, the winners of the games this weekend move on to the Super Bowl. Four games last weekend, the Patriots take down the Chargers. The Chiefs knock off the Colts, so that's your pairing in the AFC Conference Championship, Patriots-Chiefs. The Saints hold on to beat the Eagles in New Orleans, and the Rams defeat the Cowboys. So it's the Saints and the Rams and the NFC. We end up with the top two seeds in both conferences. We end up with the top four offenses in terms of points per game across the NFL this season. What do you think of the pairings that we have for Conference Championship weekend and overall what we saw last Sunday? This is – well, I'll give the the basics now, and I do have a bit of a, a deeper version later. But when you look at these four teams, it's hard to say that you don't have the best four teams in football. That's probably what should have happened, the Patriots and the Chiefs in the East, uh, the AFC, and then the Saints, who people thought were the best team, period, going against the Rams. I think it's fitting that these four teams are here. I would have liked to see the Colts play. Uh, see Andrew Luck at another game under his belt, but I think NFL gods got it right and put the f- best four teams where they should be. You said to me before the show, Jake, that you had something you wanted to get off the chest and have I do. me respond to a little bit. So let's go to that now on the NFL. So I was thinking about this and how Tom Brady doesn't have anything more to prove. He wins another one. He loses another one regardless. He's the greatest. Nothing else to do with that. But when we talk about quarterbacks in the NFL, we always have that Brady, Rogers, Brees, the the bubble, the bubble of the three. Should Drew Brees end this season with another one? I'm almost ready to say you have your Brady Brees, then you have Aaron Rodgers, then you have everybody else. 
because Drew Brees will then have rings on Aaron Rodgers, stats on Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers came into one of the best franchises, the best teams in football, period. Drew Brees got a bunch of ragtag players, one of the worst defenses in football for about six years, and transformed this team into a powerhouse and a team that no one ever wants to play. So what I'm saying is, should Drew Brees win another, it's not only a boost to him, but Aaron Rodgers is in no man's land now. Because you can't put him with the Matt Ryans of the bunch. It's just not fair to Aaron Rodgers. But you can't put him with Brady and Breeze because it's not fair to them. He's in a weird spot. I like this. Does that mean, when you look at those three guys, that especially if Breeze wins another, but probably already today if his season, if his career ended today, does that mean that Brady and Breeze are Hall of Fame guys? And what does that say about Aaron Rodgers? Is he on that bubble or... Has he still been elite enough, if you will, over the last couple of years to say that he is a Hall of Fame-type quarterback when his career eventually ends? I'd say all three of them are Hall of Fame quarterbacks. I would not be surprised if there was some resistance on Aaron Rodgers. He, he'll, if he'll make he doesn't it. win it. Like if he yeah. won another Super Bowl or two. Oh, pencil him in. He's especially fine. if he's still the 4,500-plus-yard passer in right. these next couple of seasons. He's in. And a lot of people say Tom Brady's a, a product of his system. So is Aaron Rodgers. You don't want to admit it. To some extent, like almost every like, – but you can't divorce a player completely from their system and vice versa. Right. You know, the a system lot of these might have guys have good. good pairings that yeah. allow them to succeed, but they wouldn't do so if they weren't talented players themselves regardless of the style or the coach they were playing for. The system wasn't good in Green Bay. It wasn't a good system for Aaron Rodgers, but that system made Aaron Rodgers great. It made him do the things that he needed and, to do. You, know, you can say he has elite. great receivers. Yeah, he has Devontae Adams to throw to. So does Drew Brees this year, yeah. you know. But I don't. Yeah, I don't like necessarily taking those factors and discounting the quarterback play. But I do like where you came from with that. In that, it seems to me like Drew Brees has that consistency factor. He's the most that, consistent passer ever. Yeah, that he is going to have four thousand seven hundred yards or more in pretty much every season, and there are reasons for that. Again, you could go. Well, he plays inside. He's got all these good receivers. They're playing from behind because the defense has always stunk. All of that's true, but Drew Brees still did it. Drew Brees still was out there for 16 games every single season, and this year is maybe his best year yet, or at least in recent memory. While on the other hand, Aaron Rodgers has been doing it at a high level for these last couple of years, but you start to see these last two, maybe three years, a little bit of a dip-off in his play, whereas Drew Brees in, what is he, 38, 39, continues to play at as high a level as anybody in the league. You could argue he's a top three MVP guy this year, right. and he's, what, 38, 39. You have the best, and this is what I, the deeper version of the playoffs I was talking about. When you really look at it, this was a playoffs where the old guys, the vets, the superstars, are getting ready to pass off the torch because mm-hmm. one, two years from now, Brady and Breeze aren't playing anymore. Phillip Rivers probably isn't playing anymore. Joe Flacco, in air quotes, might not be playing anymore. But you have the best quarterback the AFC has ever had passing the torch off to probably the greatest the quarterback generation. the AFC is going to have for the next five, six years with Andrew Luck and company. And, and we talk about Patrick Mahomes, too. I, would, it's, I think it's fair to say for a quarterback in his first season as a full-time starter, Patrick Mahomes has perhaps been the best we've ever seen. Right. At quarterback. So you combine him with Andrew Luck, who is still younger than you think he is, had the whole season last year off. Those couple of guys, 
could be the guys who we're talking about at 37, 38, 39, beating Breeze and Brady's records if the game continues to move in this direction where offense is at its highest level ever. And in the West, you can argue, sure, there's a Dak Prescott in the mix, and there's a Carson Wentz in the mix. Baker but Mayfield. Baker Mayfield, but Lots right here, right there. now, Jared Goff's the next one to pass the torch off to. He's playing on one of the best teams and one of the best offenses. So this is Drew Brees, the best quarterback the NFC has had in recent memory, getting ready to pass the torch off to Jared Goff. And the Eagles were right there with Nick Foles and Carson Wentz. This was not a playoffs where you had the Jacksonville Jaguars just kind of floating around there. That's why these matchups were interesting last weekend. We talked a lot about how much the Colts looked like a serious contending team. It didn't work out that way. The Chiefs played very well against them, and the Colts just had an off game as we get into these ones a little bit more. But as the sixth seed, the Colts, and as the sixth seed, the Eagles, those were legitimate playoff teams that you did not want to have to play. The Eagles come within six points of the number one team in maybe all of football, and they hold the Saints to their lowest scoring performance at the Superdome all season. The Colts, again, it was not a great game from them, but to get past the first-round opponent and to— you know, get people nervous for Kansas City, you know, and to come from where they did, one in five to start the season, you got to give them a heck of a lot of credit too. Yeah, the matchup between the Chiefs and the Colts, first drive, third down and 10, Andrew Luck throws a ball, and Eric Ebron drops it. And from that point on, and I think you can hear it, I believe that was the Al Michaels game, I think he was the one who was calling it, but whatever it might this— might have been uh, Romo Nance. Whatever the yeah. staff— on that game, sure. you can hear in their voice that they were like, it's over. That's how the game's going to go. Because they got the ball first. They won the toss. Uh, they they deferred and took the ball like they should. And they had it. They had a third down. They had the chains moving. Kept Patrick Mahomes off the field for more than a minute. But Patrick Mahomes came out. The offense played well. Not probably the best that they've ever played. But it was the defense that was surprising. This is not a good Kansas City defense and not a good Kansas City secondary. But if they play like they did against the Colts, anything's possible. All it takes is a string of a couple of games for that defense to elevate. They have been a lot better at home than they have been on the road this season. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we preview the Patriots-Chiefs matchup. But I want to go to that Patriots game Again, another one in which people were scared about the Chargers as a fifth seed. There were a lot of quote-unquote experts out there. And not to knock them down, I think there's legitimate you know, reasoning behind those picks. But a lot of experts saying not only were the Chargers going to upset New England, but that that could be a team that goes and makes a Super Bowl run. It did not end up that way. The Patriots dominate this game from start to finish. What did you make of it? What did you make of the Patriots who, as Tom Brady after the game said, nobody thinks they can supposedly win these games beating the Chargers and in the fashion that they did? It was a terrible matchup. The Chargers defense is elite, and they're elite because they don't allow big plays. They're speedy. They're fast. And for a Patriots team that is born and raised since the Wes Welker era of playing the under, cutting in slant routes a few yards early, just getting those yards and moving along, It was just a terrible matchup for them. Brady was able to carve them up. Julian Edelman was great. He turned to Rob Gronkowski when he needed it. And then the running game. The running game was, yeah, James White was the leading receiver uh, reception-wise. And then the running game with Michelle and all of them, it was just a brutal matchup for the Chargers. I don't think they were any worse than they were uh, put out to be. 
And against any other team, they probably would have played better because the Colts and the Chiefs all are big plays written all over them. But it was just a bad matchup, bad place in Foxborough at the at the worst time possible. Right. We saw the Chargers earlier this season beat the Chiefs, and that was a really big win for them. I agree with you. Tough matchup. The Patriots just kind of show up and do what they want to do, though. And that's what makes them a little bit scary to me moving into the next round. It kind of makes sense that they wouldn't be at their best through the regular season. Their division is the weakest in football, arguably, two through four. They know that they're going to make the playoffs. If it weren't for the Miami miracle, quote-unquote, they'd be the number one seed in a year that everybody thought they took a step back. Now they kind of elevate their play. They know it's the big game. Brady's healthy. He's ready to roll. They they come out and they kind of show you exactly what you think is coming, and they give it to you, and they still beat you. They, on times that Sony Michelle was the running back, they ran the ball over 90% of the time. On plays where James White was in the game at running back or split out wide, but in that 11 or 12 personnel set, they threw the ball more than 90% of the time. That's an extremely you know large tell. Typically, you want to be a little more balanced and not dictate your run-pass call based on the running back personnel, but it didn't matter. They just shoot, they just lined up and were either going to run the ball right at you with Michelle or spread you out and Brady's going to make the right read with James White in the game, and that's something that the Chiefs defense is going to definitely have to look at. It was It's kind of this two or three years ago Detroit Lion-esque play, where when Theo Riddick is on the field, 10 times out of 10, they're passing the ball. And then when it was Amir Abdullah, uh, Reggie Bush in the Times, Joyke Bell, you know they're going to run the ball. Wow, good old Joyke Bell, the worst (laughs) fantasy pick you can ever imagine. It's it's great to know that they're still doing what they want to do, but it's also kind of concerning because— Yeah, and I don't know if they'll be that drastic moving on. Against Kansas City. You have to play it smart. On top of that, you have the four best coaches, in my mind, in the NFL I heard playing that, at each other. I heard that take earlier today. I, I think there are some coaches that get a little disrespected when you say that. Right. Like, they, I, don't know, I don't know if Sean Payton is necessarily one of the best I mean, Doug, Doug Peterson has to be floating around up Doug there. Uh, even for a time— how about Frank Reich? Like, yeah, Frank I mean, Reich. I'm, I'm willing to vote for Frank Reich as coach of the year, so I guess that means I think he's one of the best coaches in the league. I think Harbaugh did a good job— his last six games, game planning with Lamar Jackson. Yeah, you get a lot of credit for being willing not yeah. only to change your system but then actually being able to and being successful with it. Speaking of coaches, for a quick slight tangent on a team that is not playing uh, this upcoming weekend, but for all the people saying that J- uh, Jerry Jones needs to look at his coaching staff and say, you know what, I own this team, I'm going to clear it out, Jason Garrett, I'll see you all later. You might not realize, but since 2014, Jason Garrett and the Cowboys have the second-best winning percentage in football, only behind the New England Patriots. Sure, playoff success is One kind playoff of what you win want. Is what people are going right. to point to. Playoff success is huge, and everybody wants the new Sean McVay's of the world. But you need to look at yourself and say, we have the second-best winning percentage in football since 2014. Can we maybe wait a few more years? and see if we get Dak Prescott developed a little more and put him out there before we kick him to the curb and pick up a coach that could be the next Sean McVay. We get it, but he could be a total dud. He could be a couple of Todd Bowles and have to live with that. But back to the games that we're talking about. We hit on the Chargers and the Patriots game, but the Saints-Eagles game I do want to go a little more yeah. deeper into because the Eagles didn't look good. Neither did the Saints for probably the majority of the game, but Michael Thomas and Drew Brees couldn't miss. The touchdown that Michael Thomas had was one of the best plays I've seen. They had an Eagles 
Uh, I don't know who was. Craven LeBlanc. With one of the best coverages on any play I've seen. Michael Thomas got the step on the inside, but he was all over him playing great defense. That is a deadly combo. And should that keep going? Because, frankly, the Rams might not be able to have it. It's a keep to leave. Always a great corner. Marcus Peters, always a great corner. They don't they don't match up to Michael Thomas. No, but I mean nobody does. I mean right. this dude has set Saints receiving records in terms of catches, yards per catch, receiving yards on the season. He set them all this year. I agree with you. The the reason why the Eagles lost this game was not because of the defense. Michael Thomas had his way, but they did a nice job against pretty much everybody else. It was frustrating to watch a few of the third and long conversions like third and 16 it's tough to say that you're okay with them picking that up but it's Drew Brees and Michael Thomas when you look back at this game it's the offense that scored 14 points for the Eagles that let them down they had seven possessions after they went up 14 nothing in which they only picked up five first downs they didn't score after the first quarter so that's why they ended up losing this game give credit to the Saints defense they lost their defensive tackle wasn't a huge factor Sheldon Rankin's and they've been better defensively than offensively at the end of the season. We talked about that coming into the game. And the offense you know, went back to their ways, their midseason ways, but the defense held strong. And it uh, looked like the Eagles were going to have a chance there, down six. Ball bounces off of Alshon Jeffrey. Bounces had been going the Eagles' way for a year and a half. They, you know, they get the Bears to beat the Vikings in the final week of the season just to make it into the playoffs. So it doesn't go their way on that final bounce. Real quick before we go to break, we talked Cowboys a bit, and so with the Rams and talking about golf. But anything that stuck out to you from that Rams-Cowboys game, the Rams end up winning by eight. Who is C.J. Anderson, and why is he playing at an all-star level? I've said it probably ten times to you personally and all of my friends. C.J. Anderson is the most boring person I've ever watched play football. He has a 1,000-yard seasons in a Denver Broncos uniform. He is nowhere near a bust of a football player, but he's just so boring that you put him on the field with Ezekiel Elliott and Todd Gurley and you tell me that's going to be the leading rusher of this game I don't know it's 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 playoffs it it is it is the ultimate ammunition for the argument that running backs don't matter it's the argument for why Le'Veon Bell should never get more than two percent of your salary cap because if you have the infrastructure if you have the offensive line if you have a passing attack that teams respect you can find most running backs to be successful. Would Le'Veon Bell, would Todd Gurley probably be a little bit more prolific, give you a little bit more? Sure. But is it worth it to your team structure to invest heavily in that position? Probably not. You look around at the teams that are left. Kansas City's doing it with Damian Williams, five-year backup. You got C.J. Anderson with the Rams. The Saints have Alvin Kamara, but they didn't pay him a whole lot. They drafted him in the third round. He turned out to be a stud. Mark Ingram, first round, is that worth it for them? You'd probably just good, rather good have player, He's no. good, but probably not. And then the Patriots, they do what they do with James White. And yeah. he, he was a guy that nobody, you know, I don't even know if he was drafted or if he was drafted late, but not a, a guy who went high in the in the draft. So, um, you know, another thing to kind of think about as we look at the teams that are left and how, you know, everybody else is going to look at these teams and blueprint themselves based off what they see being successful. And a lot of that's controlling both lines of scrimmage, good quarterbacks and running back. Maybe not as big a part of the equation. I think you said it probably perfectly at the end. The four teams remaining, you mentioned controlling the line of scrimmage, controlling both sides of the ball. These four teams in the NFL are the hardest to do that against. You can't game plan against the Patriots. You can't game plan against the Saints or the Chiefs because they're just going to beat you another way. And I think the teams that didn't make it, the Ravens are a big one. The Seahawks are a big one. They're just so easy to game plan against. Even the Cowboys. One-dimensional. 
put an extra man in the box, put an extra man on Amari Cooper. We said it. If Cole Beasley and Michael Gallup beat you, that's fine. So be it. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Ithiel Horton's good at basketball. And I was kind of scrolling through the game and listening to the calls here on Twitter. Listening to the calls and scrolling through Twitter. And I saw Delaware men's basketball. I was like, oh, Ithiel Horton hits a three. I was like, all right, cool. And then I did it again, and I kept scrolling. I said, Ithiel Horton hits another three. I was like, all right, cool. Guy can shoot. Like five or six times seeing the same tweet later, I was like, this, these aren't duplicates. These are real original tweets. <laughs> he can shoot. And I said at game one when I had him on the show, uh, the post-game interview, he said the one thing he was working on was his quick release, getting that three-pointer off the second he catches the ball. And you can see that in a lot of the replays, especially the he had a feed-in from Eric Carter uh, down in the block. Quickest shot of my, that I've ever seen. Pulls up, hits the three. He can play, and we mentioned it, rookie of the year. I think, I mean, he's leading the league. Uh, as a freshman, in, uh, for freshman in scoring, so I think he can. You go back to that first game that you and I called against Maryland. Horton comes in off the bench immediately. First shot of that game, or first first action that he was in, first shot that he was in for. They pass him the ball in the wing. He pulls the trigger immediately, knocks down the three. Had eight points in the first half alone, and he again played maybe ten, twelve minutes in that first half because he wasn't a starter yet. We saw that right away. Kind of went a little, you know, next game he didn't score at all. Eventually worked his way into the starting lineup. And now it's like you look at the options on this team. Eric Carter's obviously 1A still, and they want to play through him in the post. He's been a little bit quiet, though, as of late. And the games that Delaware's been able to get out ahead and really run away with, it's been Ithiel Horton putting up these 20-plus point performances, 31 against UNCW, which ties a freshman record for Delaware. He scored the first 12 points of the game. There was nobody that did it, and I think the last time we saw that was last year. Uh, two games, uh, I was against home against Towson, where Ryan Allen, the that was I think the second game without Ryan Daly due to injury, where Ryan Allen scored the first ten points for the Blue Hens. The first, last time I remember a Blue Hen going on an opening streak like that, it was it's great to see him being able to do that because you look at all these weapons like you mentioned, it's no longer a six deep team or a seven deep team even as it was last year, we're an eight-deep team. Even more if we want to get creative and maybe bring in a few other players. But to go eight-deep and have all eight confident players, that's what the Blue Hens team needed, probably above winning, probably above getting a stud uh, new freshman. They just needed to go depth, and I think they have that. You're listening to Blue Hens Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. So let's get into that conversation about CAA Rookie of the Year. Last two years, it's gone to a Delaware athlete. First in 2016-2017 with Ryan Daly, who obviously has left the team since he's now with St. Joe's. Last year, it was Ryan Allen who took home the award. And I pulled out some numbers for a story I did in the review this week. Remarkably similar are the season-long numbers to this point between those three guys. Daly averaged 16 points a game. Allen averaged 15.3 points per game. Ithiel Horton's at 13.8, so a little bit back in scoring. In terms of rebounds, Daly had seven a game, Allen two and a half, Horton about three. Assists, they're all between one and a half and two. But where I'm interested, what I'm interested in is the efficiency. Horton had the highest field goal percentage of all of them on the fewest amount of shots per game. He's taking about three less shots per game and only scoring about two less points than the other two. And in terms of three-point percentage, 
Ithiel Horton is number one of the three at 42.3%. Ryan Allen is at was at 39% in the season in which he tied the Delaware record for threes made in a season. Horton about two percentage points higher than that. And Horton about 10, I guess, nine percentage points higher than Ryan Daly, who's at 33%. And again, Horton taking about a attempt and a half less than Allen per game from three. So all those numbers combined to paint the picture of a guy who's been more efficient than those two guys. The raw counting numbers, not exactly there yet to match those guys in scoring. But if you think about what happened in those past two seasons, both Daly and Allen really gained steam toward the middle to the end of CIA play, where they began playing more minutes a game and getting more of the offensive load. And it seems like Horton is following that trajectory, where he's starting to take more shots, he's starting to play more minutes and heavy minutes toward the end of games, and I think we're going to keep seeing that scoring number rise to about that 15, 16 point per game level that we saw with Allen and Daly, and as such... I don't see why he wouldn't be the CIA Rookie of the Year. He's number one in scoring among rookies in the CIA, as you mentioned, number one in three-point field goal percentage by a large margin among CIA freshmen. Matt Verretto is actually one of the other guys in that race, the other Blue Hens freshman. But, I mean, we asked you asked Martin Inglesby before the season whether it could be three in a row. He didn't commit to it, but they said they, we like this guy. And so far, so good. Yeah, he gave us the generic I'm on the radio head coach of a basketball team answer of, yes, anyone on the team can win CAA Rookie of the Year, and I'd I'd pick all my guys if I can. But I think the whole picture is this. The Blue Hens listen to our radio show. That's all I'm saying. Because we talked in the beginning of the year, and we both agreed that at some point in the beginning of CAA play, the Eric Carter high pick and roll is not going to be the number one option. It can't be anymore because teams are going to start keying in on it. And Coach Inglesby sat down and said, you know what? Brandon and Jake are right. So what we're going to do is we're going to spread out the floor a little bit. We're not going to do high pick and rolls. We're going to spread the floor and let our guys shoot. In comes Ethel Horton. That's why he's scoring so well. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Let's get into those NFL Conference Championship games. In the AFC, it's the Patriots Chiefs. In the NFC, it's the Rams Saints. We mentioned it at the top of the show. These are the top two seeds in both conferences. They are the four best offenses in the NFL. And I want to start there. It's been a topic of conversation nationally the last couple of days. Does this postseason, the way it's played out, is it a referendum on the way you have to win in the playoffs? Is a team that is based in its defense, if that's its identity, it's a defense-first team, Will that team be able to be successful in the playoffs moving forward in the NFL? Or is the only quote-unquote formula or blueprint to win in the playoffs to build one of these juggernaut-type offenses? Is that the only way that you can get to this point? Because that's the way that these four teams have been able to do it. I mean, you you look at them. They're offensive powerhouses with four terrible defenses. Now, don't. Jump down my throat. I know Aaron Donald is still playing in the NFL playoffs, and you still have D Ford and a Chicago, uh, Kansas City Chiefs uniform. I know, I know, I get it. But these are bad defenses. They're not the Ravens, the Jaguars. Uh, sure, they have great defensive efficiency. They're not the Cowboys. They're bad defenses in relativity to their offense. And I think even the past few years, you have these stud defenses. I mean, 
Denver basically won Peyton Manning another ring based on their defense. Jacksonville made it this deep based on their defense. A few years ago, Early Baltimore did. Yeah, Legion of the Boom. F- first, second years with Russell Wilson. Carolina, too. Sure, Cam Newton was great during that MVP no, campaign. but they had but a really good defense. That, that was year. the one year where Green Bay was the other one, where if you ran the ball against Green Bay or Carolina, you are almost guaranteed a loss. Luke Keekley and Clay Matthews were the best two run stoppers, period. There wasn't anyone even near that. Yeah, it's an offensive world. A lot more touchdowns being thrown. And that's why this is so interesting, especially Kansas City, because it's going to be negative degrees. It's literally going to be so cold that they can't even throw the ball. So it's going to be a weird game. It's going to be funky, but I agree. Offensive wins games now. You look at Football Outsiders DVOA, and it certainly seems to be the case. So you look at the top five teams in the NFL offensively. It's the Chiefs, number one, the Rams, number two, the Chargers, who are knocked out at number three, but then the Saints and Patriots, 4-5. All of the four teams that are remaining are within the top five offenses in terms of Football Outsiders DVOA. If you look at the top five defenses in Football Outsiders DVOA, it's the Bears, knocked out in round one. The Bills, they weren't even close to making it to the playoffs. The Ravens, knocked out in round one. The Vikings, who were knocked out final week of the regular season. And the Broncos, who had no chance of making it. Some teams out of those five better than others. But the common theme between them is they're built in their defensive identities. They have decent but not great quarterbacks. And the other teams have decent but not great defenses. And we're talking about four of the best ten quarterbacks. Is that fair to say left? Sure. And three of maybe the best five in the league that are left this weekend. The thing about the Chiefs and the Patriots, and I mentioned the cold weather, is that really does mean a lot. People sometimes discount weather for the NFL with anything but kicking. Kicking's going to be brutal in the cold weather because cold wind doesn't really hit the ball as hard as humid, heavy temperatures. And we see that in baseball too. Baseball's a little different, I don't know, physically than football, but places like Coors Field with the Colorado Rockies, the ball just has a different spin to it than anywhere else. You have to realize the Kansas City Chiefs and Tyreek Hill and these 40-yard touchdowns, which they lead the league in, might not happen. This might be Patrick Mahomes' biggest test, and not because he's playing the best team he's played. I mean, he had to play the Chargers twice a year. But he needs to try to win without having Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, and Sammy Watkins blow past defensive backs. It'll be a weird game plan and a weird thing to watch Patrick Mahomes do. I want to make this point. And I know you come at this from a Patriots perspective, so I'm interested because you you follow this team as closely as any other in the league. You follow it closer than I do. My point that I'm going to make here is that if the Patriots had beaten the Miami Dolphins, the game in which Rob Gronkowski is left on the field on the Hail Mary and he can't make the tackle, the Dolphins win on the last play of the game. If they had won that game, they would win the Super Bowl. They would be the number one overall seed in the AFC, and I wouldn't have as many question marks coming into a Chiefs-Patriots matchup in Foxborough. And then from there, I'd take them in the Super Bowl over what we see with the two NFC teams because the Patriots always show up for the Super Bowl with an extra week to prepare. But because they're on the road this weekend, things get a lot harder, and I'm probably going to go with the Chiefs because of the home field advantage. Tom Brady in the playoffs over his decade-plus-long career is 20-3 and at home 
but three and four on the road. 23 games at home, seven on the road, and he has more losses on the road. This season, they were three and five on the road. We know how important it is for them to play home field advantage. They've never made the Super Bowl outside of the one or two seeds. And I think it gets tough going to Arrowhead Stadium where the Chiefs' defense has been a lot better in terms of DVOA than on the road. They're 12th in the NFL in home DVOA defensively, 30th on the road. And that defense played very well last week against Indianapolis. What do you make of that? I see it from two sides. The first is should the Patriots be the one seed? I might not even say they would be playing right now because they would have to have played the Colts, assuming that the Colts would have still beat the Texans. At home, though? Patriots at home versus the Colts? I think that the Patriots at home versus the Colts is a more dangerous matchup than the Patriots away facing Kansas City. I would be more scared of the Colts coming to us than us going to Kansas City. But should they beat the Colts and then should they have Kansas City coming to them, I fully agree pretty much now in the coffin. That's an impossible task for the Kansas City Chiefs to do. I think the Patriots are good at two things, and that's beating the Pittsburgh Steelers and being better than you late in the game. That's when they shine. They may not be the best first-half team, but they were always going to be the best second-half team. The Colts and the Chiefs are teams that are known for making big gaps in the first half where the second half doesn't even matter. How many times has Patrick Mahomes had six touchdowns and the defense just gives up enough points where they still win the football game? That's this whole matchup-based home field thing. I agree with you. Should they be the one seed and make it to this position, they'd be in the Super Bowl, but I'd be pretty scared for the Colts coming in to visit. Let's go to the NFC matchup, Rams-Saints. I'm going to throw this one to you. I'm thinking about this matchup all throughout the week, and I really don't know what to make of how these teams line up. First of all, they're very similar in how they've gotten to this point. High-flying offenses, defenses that have been a little up and down. Saints probably a little bit better defensively than the Rams. Maybe the Rams can beat you in a couple more ways offensively, but ultimately very similar teams, and they played a very close game in which the Rams tried to come back on the Saints earlier this season. I want you to make the case for the Rams winning this game and then for the Saints winning this game. Because as we think about what our picks are going to be later on in the show, I'm really torn on this one. I don't have a good grasp on who I think is going to win this game. I think it's clear-cut to four players, two for each team. The Rams, it's Todd Gurley and Marcus Peters. Todd Gurley is going to need to put up 150 yards, 200 scrimmage yards in this game. Wouldn't be surprised if the Rams give him that. You need to do what got you there. And this narrative of coaches not doing what got them to the playoffs, we saw it with Baltimore. I don't think Sean McVay is dumb enough to avoid Todd Gurley completely. Todd Gurley needs to scrimmage yards. Marcus Peters is probably not going to get matched up with Michael Thomas. It'll probably be a key to leave. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's they faster, do and he's travel better. to leave around. Right. So you think about... If they go into one-on-one situations, you could see Tlaib travel to the slot. You could see him go sideline to sideline. The Saints like to use Thomas a lot in the slot, but they will line him up outside as well and get like a Ted Ginn-type guy on some deep crossers. They're probably going to stick Tlaib more times than not on Thomas because Ted Ginn, if Ted Ginn beats you, Ted Ginn beats you, and they're more confident in Marcus Peters over there. What's the matchup for the Rams against Alvin Kamara? We saw last week the Eagles do a nice job with them because they go big dime. They let Malcolm Jenkins kind of take care of him one-on-one. But that's not a type of player that every team has. 
The Chargers have a guy like that in Derwin James, but those hybrid-type safeties doesn't seem that the Rams really have one on their team. They probably should in a guy like Mark Barron, who was drafted as a safety, now plays linebacker, but he hasn't been great for them this season. What do you do about Kamara in this matchup? Saints offense, Rams defense. When they traded for Dante Fowler from the Jacksonville Jaguars, I thought that was going to be the only role that he's playing. He's playing a lot more uh, flex than most teams, kind he's of been moving rushing around. Yeah. passer a lot. Too. He's just been doing whatever the Saints, uh, the Rams need him to do. If I had to pick somebody, cliche as it might sound, it's Aaron Donald. And if you were to say that you need an interior rusher to not only rush the quarterback but key in on a running back, I'd say that's impossible for everybody but Aaron Donald because he's just good enough to take his man on and watch a running back, and he's quick enough. But that's the problem with the Saints. And the two players I was going to say from the Saints perspective— Yeah, I was about to say, I, I cut you off midstream there, but go back to the Saints now. Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas. Because mm-hmm. defensively, they should be okay. Cam Jordan and Marshall Lattimore should be okay enough to hold the Rams' offense. But Drew Brees is going to get rushed. Aaron Donald, Sandama can sue. He's, you're you're going to get rushed. And Drew Brees gets the ball out of his hands. Yes, like he's he's about as quick as they come. Mm-hmm. And you least know, sack quarterback in the league this year. You know you're going to get rushed. You know you're going to get uh, some pressure on you. Your two best options are your slot guy, which we said is Michael Thomas more times than not, and your running back. Because if your running back's not picking up a block and protecting you, he's five or six yards away from the pocket, just staring at you, waiting and. No running uh, – Ezekiel Elliott does that great. Jay Jai, when he's healthy, is really smart with pocket collapses. Not only is he a decently smart blocker, but he understands when the pocket's collapsing that you need to kind of use those two guys. So those are my two for the Saints, my two for the Rams, Todd Gurley and Marcus Peters. Um, But again, for Alvin Kamara, it's going to be Aaron Donald. When you look at the Saints' defense going up against the Rams' offense, to me, I still would be of the mindset that I want Jared Goff to beat me in this game. If I can, not to say take away, I think that's too simplistic, but if I can limit Todd Gurley and C.J. Anderson by paying more attention or being more aggressive up toward the line of scrimmage, I think I'm willing to risk... Jared Goff on the play-action pass lighting me up. And they have done that. That's the game for the Rams, right? If they're going to establish that outside zone and then they're going to run Jared Goff off of that and give him open passes because they're drawing you in to defend the run. I think I'm going to let Goff sit back there. I'm going to drop into coverage. I'm going to let him try to beat me in this game because of the four guys left this weekend, he's the least accomplished quarterback. And if it comes to a shootout, I would still give it to my guy in Drew Brees playing at the Superdome. So to me, that's how I see it. I see extra attention going toward Gurley and Anderson in a similar way that the Bears gave and that the Eagles gave in that little late-season swoon the Rams have, and I'm making Goff beat me from the pocket. Is that kind of the way you see the Saints' defensive approach coming against the Rams' offense? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that this is a game where... Sean Payton and company key in on the offensive powerhouses. So they're going to try to take Todd Gurley out of the game, C.J. Anderson out of the game. That feels incredibly weird to say. Uh, and they're just going to accept the Jared Goff train. And for good reason. I mean, they were up 21 points at the half when they played each other during the regular season, and the Rams came back 
partially because Todd Gurley was able to escape out of the pocket and then Jared Goff was able to pass. So they're looking at that and saying that to themselves, what went wrong? Sure, they had to come back, but it was because we let their offensive stars like Todd Gurley get free. So if we key in on them, I don't think Jared Goff could do that again. Am I convinced that that's the correct thing to do? Probably not. I'd actually be more balanced in your attack uh, rather than dropping an extra man back because Jared Goff's actually okay. I mean, sure. Yeah, he's not a bad quarterback. Sure, he might not be uh, Brees or Brady or Mahomes, but he's good enough to get the job done. And, it, I mean, talk about a test. Yeah, FC Conference it. Championship game, Superdome. Best team in football. Rematch. You got to beat the best team in football to go to the Super Bowl. I'm trying to think here as far as when you look at the way, like the potential matchups we could get from this. Don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but what would make you most excited as far as just a game from its pure entertainment value based on the different pairing we could get from this week? And not necessarily what pairing you think we're going to get, but what you would be most excited to see schematically going up against each other in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's hard to not say Chiefs-Rams just because of what they did in the regular season. It was one of the most incredible games. Pure sloppy football, and I don't think we're going to see even close to that again. 54-51. Yeah, but entertainment value, I would love to just see Tom Brady and Drew Brees play against each other. This is a game— Never had that, right? Right. This is a game where you're going to sit back— and say to yourselves, this is a game where it's the quarterbacks playing against each other. You don't need your five coordinators sitting on the sidelines calling every offensive play. This is a game where you send your two guys out there, two of the greatest quarterbacks to ever do it, and they're going to call a game, and they're going to play their game. The defenses are going to be tasked to slow them down. This will be a game where defense doesn't even matter. Not saying it's going to be a shootout, but it's going to be a game where defense doesn't even matter. And it's going to be the two greatest quarterbacks doing what they want probably bookending both of their careers. Of all of these four teams, which individual, be it player or coach, has the most to prove this weekend? In my head, I'm going to go Andy Reid. That's what I was going to say. Kansas City Chiefs. I think if there's a year, this has to be it. You get the Patriots at home, Patrick Mahomes in a 50-touchdown season, I know he's in his first year as a starting quarterback, and he's going to be back, and this is going to be a good team long-term. But you never know how long your window to compete for a Super Bowl championship will be, and it is almost always shorter than you think it is. He has been in this situation time and time again with the Eagles in the conference championship, has made it to the Super Bowl once, lost to the Patriots. This, I think, is his opportunity to make it happen and to solidify. He's already... Should be a Hall of Fame coach in my mind. But for any doubters out there who have said that he can't get it done, this is his chance to prove those guys wrong and go to the Super Bowl. In a game, You know they're going to have a tough competition regardless of who comes out of it, Rams-Saints. But I think they can play with either of those teams should they be able to get through New England. So I was going to say Andy Reid, but I'll kind of go uh, away from that. I have two. They're both players. First is Rob Gronkowski. He yeah. didn't have a good season. Can he, can he prove that he's not washed? Yeah. Is he still? I mean, two years ago, everyone was saying stamp of approval, greatest tight end ever. There's not even a discussion about it. Let's just get, right. get on with the show. Now there's a discussion. Yeah. Now people are saying maybe Tony Gonzalez was better 
Maybe Antonio Gates in his uh, prime was better. What's Travis Kelsey going to Yeah, Travis Kelsey, if Zach Ertz has 114 receptions <laughs> for another season, that has to be up there. But he needs to prove not only that he's not washed, but that he's not forming a rift between him and his players and his and the coaching staff. That he's still in this to play football and that he's still in this to be a Patriot and play football. Other players, Jared Goff. Can, yeah. can I get in on Gronk? I will say it has only been 12 months since the Patriots came out at halftime and targeted Gronk repeatedly on that first drive of the second half down by two scores against the Eagles and were not stopped in the second half completely. It is really easy to now just hop on the train of Gronk's done, and he has looked bad at times this season, slow, not getting separation. But is there still that game in him? To be a difference maker in one of these big moments, that will be fun to find out. Your second one, Jake, real quick. Jared Goff. Break. Yeah. We said it. He's, he's the worst quarterback out of the four. And if he wants to prove to himself and the players and coaches and everyone around him that he is the next best quarterback in the NFC when the t- Rodgers and Breeze file out, that he is the next to maintain this this dynasty run, that his team is the one to do it. What better way than taking down the best team in football at probably the hardest place to play in the NFL? He has the weapons, he has the coaching staff, and he has everything lined up for him. He needs to make everyone recognize that he can play. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Let's shift gears, kind of a full 180 here, but we do want to get in some NBA talk because we haven't been able to talk basketball in a couple of weeks now. Uh, And we're going to go through kind of loosely – talk about some of the awards as we get to the midway point of the season, as well as what we see as the finals matchup. Obviously, still tons of basketball left to be played this season, but let's see where we kind of sit here on January 17th, starting off first with the MVP vote. And I also have pulled up here as we go through this ESPN's NBA experts vote. So they have all of their writers and statisticians give their vote at this point in the season. And as we look at the MVP race, it's the familiar names. At the top of the list is Giannis Antetokounmpo from the Milwaukee Bucks. Second is James Harden. And third is LeBron James. I think at this point in the season, I've changed my pick. If you asked me a couple weeks ago, I think I would have said Giannis. What James Harden is doing right now has made me change my pick. And I think he if he continues even on a slightly smaller trajectory than this, will eventually pass Giannis. He's been absolutely insane, averaging 44 points per game in the month of January, 9.3 rebounds, 8.6 assists. On the season, Harden is up over 35 points a night and has almost single-handedly pulled the Houston Rockets down from the bottom of the Western Conference up into the fifth spot, and they continue to rise with his strong play without CP3 for much of that stretch. If the season ended today, Jake, who is your MVP? I want to say James Harden, and I think he'll probably win it. But when you look at his last three games, it was 115 points scored with zero assists. Zero. Not one. Zero assists. And that is great if you want to win MVP. The only stat people look at is scoring. So it's almost unanimous that he'll win it. But that's not a good long ball play. They're playing ISO ball, and how Colin Coward kind of put it when he was talking on the show is no assist is great when you have Chris Paul on the team that can do all the passing, but Chris Paul doesn't have much time left. So when it's just James Harden, it's going to be a problem. MVP-wise, I'll still give it to Giannis. I still st- and that's still who ESPN has at the top of their list. I'll, I'll, I'd like to see, while extreme, 
Another few 50-point games from James Harden. He currently has 13 in his career. LeBron James has 12, uh, second most active uh, in the NBA. I'd like to see a few more 50-point games from him, or at least consistency, before I give, give him the award. On that point, James Harden leads the NBA in usage percentage, which basically is the volume of possessions that end in the player either making, missing a basket, or going to the foul line. His usage percentage is 40%. He also led the NBA in usage last season at 36%. The Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis's team, they right now are tied with the Toronto Raptors at the top of the Eastern Conference. Let's go to Rookie of the Year. I think this one's pretty clear-cut. Luka Doncic took 97.7% of the votes in ESPN's forecast, and he's my pick as well. He's incredible. I would be very surprised uh, if he doesn't win number one in voting in the West for the All-Star game. It's going to be hard to beat Steph Curry, but I think he was a couple hundred thousand behind him, and that's really nothing in this day and age, so I'd be interested to see if he can make it. DeAndre Ayton was the only other rookie to receive votes in ESPN's ballot. For sixth man of the year, the leader in ESPN's forecast is Lou Williams of the Los Angeles Clippers. He took 25% of the vote, followed closely by Derek Rose of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Demantis Sabonis from the Pacers got some love. Then 4-5-6, it's Spencer Dinwiddie, Montrez Harrell of the Clippers, and Dennis Schroeder of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Of course, in this award, you have to have a certain percentage, a pretty high percentage of your games played come off the bench, not starting. So it excludes some of those guys who go back and forth. Who do you have when you look at the landscape for a six-man of the year? I put two. I put Spencer Dinwiddie and Derrick Rose. I put Derrick Rose on there just because it what just makes your heart story. happy. I mean, his comments the other day, should he have said that? No. And if, if you're wondering, you can look it up. It's can't really repeat it here. Um, but the play from where he was in his career to be playing at the level he is now that's remarkable. He was the butt of every joke when he went to the New York Knicks. And it was likely that he wasn't going to go to another team if he didn't have the connection with Tom Thibodeau, who was his coach with the Chicago Bulls and until a couple days ago was his coach with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Not only has he become a part of the rotation, like he legitimately fuels that offense when Carl Anthony Towns is not on the floor. It's great. It's a great story. It makes your heart happy. And he's in that all-star conversation, too. Well, he's getting the votes just because of of how great of a story it is. It's almost similar to Andrew Luck in the NFL. You can be uh, the most hated Colts. You can hate the Colts with every bone in your body, but you have to smile when you see Andrew Luck do what he's doing coming back from that gruesome injury. It's the same with Derrick Rose. You can hate the Timberwolves. You can hate the Knicks. You can hate the Chicago Bulls all you want, The, the Cleveland Cavaliers even. To see what Derrick Rose is doing makes you happy. I have Dinwiddie above him, but if Derrick Rose wins it, even if Pat, uh, Lou Williams, who seems to be unanimously always a sixth man of the year, I think teams just put him on the bench, or the Clippers specifically just put him on a bench, because he's a starter. They just put him on the bench so he can win the award every year. And they have that kind of deep roster where it's like, yes, he's one of our best five players. He's playing closeout minutes but we can use him as that spark because we do have guys like Tobias Harris to run with that first unit off the tip of the game. Again, Lou Will is the top spot in ESPN's ballot. Let's go defensive player of the year. I think this one's over too, frankly. Who do you have? Paul George. Paul George is number one on ESPN's list as well. Yeah, he's the best perimeter defender. Uh, Sure, there's Draymond Green. Sure, there's even Patrick Beverly, but no one does it like Paul George does. 
the leader in ESPN's defensive real plus minus is Rudy Gobert, and he comes in number two on ESPN's forecast. The argument for Rudy Gobert over Paul George is that interior defense is inherently more valuable than elite perimeter defense. Right. So, and that's kind of the argument that people had a few years ago when we were talking about Draymond Green, Kawhi Leonard, and Rudy Gobert for this award. And it eventually did not go to Rudy Gobert, it went to Draymond Green. And even then, it maybe should have gone to Kawhi Leonard, but the reputation goes to Draymond Green. That being said, a big reason why OKC is third in the West and one of the best teams in terms of defensive rating has to be Paul George's perimeter defense. Steven Adams is a great rim protector, too, who helps them defensively. But they've been doing this for much of the season without their supposed best defender and Andre Robertson. Paul George, I think, gets a lot of credit for that. The argument, I think, is still there for Gobert, too. I think it goes down to those two guys. But I'd probably lean George at this point. But there is something that says, I want the big guy still to be Defensive Player of the Year. The other three names on ESPN's ballot were Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard, and Joel Embiid. I don't even know... I'm surprised to see that Embiid got that larger percentage. His defensive play has kind of trailed off while his offense has gotten better. Uh, Anthony Davis, kind of same thing there too. But uh, the large majority of the votes going to Paul George and Rudy Gobert. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. We are running through our award picks midseason in the NBA. Let's go to Coach of the Year. Who do you have in that category? ESPN as the Bucks, Mike Budenholzer, number one, with 52.3% of the vote, followed by Mike Malone, Greg Popovich, Nate McMillan, and Nick Nurse. Who do I, you like for that award? I, again, put two for this. I have Malone at one, and I have Popovich at two. But I think Popovich is in that Bill Belichick boat where really can't give him the award every year, even though he probably should. The Spurs had one of the worst records in the NBA for the first, what, like 25 games or something? And now Pop has him as the fifth best offense since that time in basketball and they're on some 14 and 6 tear or something uh, i was i was thinking about budenholzer with the bucks but i mean because he is the only team to have a top five offense and a top five defense but he's almost on his if at first you don't succeed do it again and then do it again and i think he's finally found the right recipe but i think Mal- uh, malone is doing more with less and having his team at the top of the West. That's fair. I like that pick, too. I wasn't thinking a lot of Mike Malone, but you kind of talked me into it. I'm a little down on Budenholzer, too, because I think a lot of it's built into how poor the previous regime was there in utilizing the talent that they have, that all of a sudden it looks like they've made this really big jump, where I think, yes, they have made some changes. They have Brooke Lopez shooting all these threes, you're using Giannis more effectively. Budenholzer should get credit for that. His whole staff should. But it goes into that whole where the preseason expectations too low for this team, and therefore we're giving them all this credit for exceeding those expectations that maybe should have been a little bit higher for this team. Whereas with Denver, they've had injuries, and they, you know, they're playing around Nikola Jokic, who has been great offensively, has problems defensively. They just don't have that that star. They're that guy who can hold things down on both ends of the floor. So it has to come from scheme. And I give credit to the coaching staff for that. The next thing I want to ask you about are your most likely teams to make it out of the East and the West. Obviously, a lot's going to change here. But if you just had to pick one from each conference at this point of the season, as we sit here 
January 17th. Who would you go with? Mm. Let me give you mine first. Mine's not Mine's not going to knock your socks off. I mean, I, I have the Warriors in the West. I don't, don't mm-hmm. like to think about that. Um, if I have to pick one team, I'm going to pick the Warriors until forever. In the East, I want to say the Celtics, but they're almost having real problems. Like not Philadelphia Sixers, Philadelphia 76ers for the end of last regular season, where they were like, kind of had problems, but it wasn't anything too severe. A few things happened in the playoffs, of course, but I'll go the Bucks, but not feel confident about it in the East. I'm going Raptors. They go number one on ESPN's list. I just think they've gone a little bit, I mean, a little bit colder, seven and three in the last 10 games, but they've they've now lost sole possession of first place in the East, where it looked like for a little while they were going to run away from it with it. But this team's deep, and I think Kawhi Leonard is still the best player in the East. I mean, Giannis is close there, but I like what Kawhi offers defensively matching up against some of these other teams. Can Kawhi take Jimmy Butler out of the game when they play the Sixers? And can he give Giannis, you know, nobody's going to stop Giannis, but can he slow him down enough if they met the Milwaukee Bucks in a playoff series? There's enough coming from the other pieces, which was a question coming into the season with Toronto, but there's enough coming from guys like Pascal Siakam and Giannis Valanciunas and Kyle Lowry that I think they put up enough offense around Kawhi, and then defensively I like what they offer. So I'll go with Toronto, but I do see the Bucks as a legitimate contender there. And Boston probably still has as much talent as anybody. Right. They just, they just for whatever reason, have not been able to put it together consistently. Any of the top five teams in the East you can probably make a claim for. Indiana's playing pretty well. I mean, even the Nets are competitive. I wouldn't say if all of these teams series, happen to not yeah. make it. But they're, they're, it's interesting. This is the first time in a while that we can go six or seven teams in the East and say they're all competitive basketball teams. Yeah, absolutely. And then you look out West, and almost everybody's still somewhat in this conversation. My last question to you, Jake. Warriors or the field for the NBA championship? ESPN people overwhelmingly take the Warriors in that question. 90, excuse me, that's their 77%. Yeah. Warriors of the field. I, t- I think I it's take Warriors. Warriors. It's hard to say that five All-Stars versus teams that have Boogie probably Cousins at most two. Boogie Cousins tonight Yeah, which is another big story. The, the interview that happened with Boogie Cousins, and he kind of, I didn't really like, did you watch the full interview? I did not. He was kind of sounding like the Warriors were a product of him. He was like, yeah, like this squad, my squad, this and that, my this, my Golden State Warriors. I get it. You're on the team. You're signed. You practice with them. But they are there because of them, not because of you. If it was Steph Curry or Kevin Durant in that position, fine. My Warriors, my this. But you're not quite there. Are you good enough to make a huge impact on the team? Sure. But you haven't played. Maybe today he comes out and drops 50 points. We don't know. But that interview was a bit uh, bit over the top for DeMarcus Cousins. And they have had, quote-unquote, off-court issues all season long. You think back a couple months ago to the whole Durant versus Draymond Green thing, and maybe these types of things have implications for how long this state team stays together long-term. But if I still have to pick the team that's on the court, these five All-Stars together, with now, what is it, four months to work the chemistry out with bringing DeMarcus Cousins into the fold. I can't 
take another team over them.